You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braven. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about the new plan to end hepatitis C in the United States. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. Glad to be here to talk about this today. So, John, can you tell us first a little bit about what's happening with HCV or hepatitis C in the U.S. today? Yeah, so sure, Mary. I think I, I think that's a good thing to place to start. I think for today, um, just a couple of things. I, I think um, I think most of us are aware of this, but I think the risks for Hep C infection, just to kind of top line those, you know, obviously transmission through sharing needles is probably the biggest uh, route of transmission. Um, syringes or injection equipment. I think that's probably the most uh, common way that people uh, contract hepatitis C. Um, but it also can be um, through mother to child transmission, you know, even during pregnancy or, or birth. And, and rarely we'll see, uh, sometimes we'll see sexual contact as well. And, and based on some of the earlier numbers, that's probably more common in the, in the men having sex with men uh, population uh, that um, sexual contact is probably more common there. Uh, most, I think, happens through injection uh, drug use. So people inject drugs uh, in the U.S. And treatment, I, th- I think everybody's aware of this, but treatment is really uh, readily available for most people. It's very good at curing patients when we use some of these all-oral direct-acting um, antiviral medications. And these really kind of revolutionized the treatment of hep C a few years back. And and even I, I think we did an update on hep C, I think, once in the last year, and there isn't much new in hep C, um, except that, you know, a lot of the newer regimens are really uh, what we call pangenotypic, meaning that they cover all of the genotypes that might be available, where some of the earlier regimens might have only covered genotype one or genotype four. Um, you know, all the regimens that we have now also cover genotype two and three and five and six as well. Um, but most of the newer pangenotypic regimens have fewer drug interactions for the most part um, than some of the earlier hep C, especially the P based regimens like telaprevir, for example, was one that comes to mind that we used to use a lot of. Um, but currently, despite all these good treatments, there's no vaccine exists. So that's an important piece of, of, of what kind of a piece of this plan, I think, in the future is going to be trying to develop a vaccine. But screening and linkage to care is going to be key to identifying new cases and getting people uh, treated and cured for hep C. So what exactly does the U.S. data look like? Yeah, so this is important too. So, so usually the way they cut this out, they cut it out by acute cases and then chronic cases. So, acute cases are the people that are infected kind of in a more more rapid rapid time, like you know, 
Acute infection means that you were just you were recently infected, for example, or a chronic infection. Those people have been infected for many, many years. Um, and, and roughly in 2020, that's the most recent data, it's just under 5,000, like 4,798 cases of acute hep C were reported. But um, the, the estimate, though, for acute infection is, is probably um, closer, closer to 66,700 cases. And because a lot of this, a lot of these cases aren't reported because um, of the reporting systems, but more importantly, they have to make these estimates based on, on what they think epidemiologically has happened. Plus, I, I think one of the problems here is that we have, um, uh, you know, for, for 2020, um, uh, there were roughly 107,000 new chronic hepatitis C cases. And, and those were roughly, if you look at the per 100,000, it's like 40, 40.7 newly reported cases for every 100,000 persons. So one of the things too, that you have to realize that if you, if you look at since 2013, the incidence of hep C, or at least acute cases, have more than doubled. Uh, and if you look at 2019 and 2020, it was a 15% increase. But just remember in 22, just like we had the problems with the HIV data, the data from hepatitis C is also a, a problem. A couple of things happened. One, the, the way they reported cases of acute hepatitis C are defined differently um, to, be, to be more accurate. But you have to remember also that in 2020, um, there may be a significant underestimate due to testing uh, delays and testing, um, a lack of testing because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So again, a couple of things that are going on in 2020, which is hard to, for us to kind of make, make a full assessment of what's actually happening. But for acute hep C, I think the most important thing is that if you look at the, um, the it has doubled since 2013, um, and the highest rates are in, uh, are in American Indian and Alaska Natives, those that are 20 to 39 years, those are the highest incidence of acute hep C. And then 66% of those cases occurred in, in people who inject drugs. So again, mostly people who inject drugs, um, the highest rates are in American Indian and Alaska Natives. Those that are 20 to 39 years are, are the highest incidence. And for chronic hep C, um, uh, there's 64% newly reported chronic hep C uh, cases among men. So again, an increase there. And, and then um, 66.8 for 100,000 people among um, American Indian, Alaska Native, and again, also affecting 20 to 39, and also 55 to 70. So again, for acute and chronic, it's a little bit different, but know that the numbers have actually gone up. There's been basically a doubling of, uh, of cases since 2013, which is a big concern. Now that we have treatment, there's a lot of things that we can do to kind of, kind of fix this and, and make this right. So what is the plan for ending HCV in the U.S.? Yeah, so so just a few months ago in JAMA, um, there, there's a nice piece. It's it's written uh, that was written about ending the Hep C epidemic. One of one of the co-authors is Dr. Collins, and Collins has been um, with the government for many many years uh, doing doing a lot of this work. And um, uh, he he's kind of in charge of this whole kind of idea of eliminating hepatitis C. So here are some of the highlights of this article. So this is again um, the the there were, uh, Rachel Florence and then uh, Francis Collins are the two co-authors, and it was in JAMA in March of, of this year. And first of all, a couple of things, I think um, we all know that in the, in the last few decades has been the development of really these DAA drugs, which has really transformed Hep C treatment. In fact, Marion, the, the cures for hepatitis C with treatment occurs more than 95% of the time. And the vast majority of the time, people, people who, are, um, who are identified as being um, uh, living with hepatitis C can be, can be treated easily. But despite these important advances, uh, that occurred about eight or nine years ago, uh, these easy eight to 12 week oral cures are not always reaching the significant fraction of the more than 
uh, estimated 2.5 million residents that we think are chronically infected with hep C. So, so the worst part about this is that, you know, more than 15,000 residents die of hep C every year. So this is a, a nice intervention where we could potentially, you know, prevent the deaths of, of, of close to 15,000 residents uh, from, from, by treating hepatitis C. So as a result, many of you may be aware, but for the fiscal year 2024, for that budget proposal, the, the administration proposed a five-year program uh, to put the nation on course to eliminate hepatitis C in the U.S. So, so to kind of back up for a second, and so what happens if you have untreated hep C? So what if, what if all these people just were left and didn't get treated? So the biggest issue is cirrhosis, liver failure, and then the biggest concern is hepatocellular carcinoma, in, in which can lead to death in the vast majority of patients. But in addition, if we treat hep C and cure people, this is also going to have a positive impact on reducing transmission. So again, that whole idea of, uh, of treatment as prevention, where if you have people that are treated and that, that, so that cure, cure for hepatitis C, they won't be able to transmit the virus to other people. So that hopefully will prevent additional cases of liver cancer and liver failure and will ultimately save lives. And so the real question is, why is this not happening? And I can tell you for us in our clinic, those that are co-infected, the vast majority, and I would say probably 85, 90%, if not higher, have already been treated for those uh, persons living with HIV who are also co-infected with hepatitis C. Most of those patients have been treated. But people with diagnosed hepatitis C often have poor access to healthcare. And, and persons with hep C infection um, often are without insurance and disproportionately this affects the American Indian and Alaska Native population uh, and also non-Hispanic Black persons and people who inject drugs. So, so that's one piece of it. So it's access to poor access to healthcare is certainly one thing. Secondly, I think testing, you know, an estimated 40% of persons who are chronically infected are aware of their infection. So you have all these people that have not been screened and are not aware that they have hepatitis C. But screening for hep C is recommended for, for the, by the CDC for all adults, especially pregnant persons and anyone who has identified risk factors. And I think many of us would agree that, that the uptake in practice has been limited um, for, 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 for testing. And then the other issue is that really the testing for hep C, Mariana, people may not or may not realize this, but it really requires two steps. So the first step is an antibody test to detect prior, uh, prior infection. It can also detect uh, prior people who were treated and cured. That, that antibody test will still be positive after you've incurred. But then the next step is you have to have a reflex test to a viral load or an RNA test, really to determine if the virus is actually still active. I, I haven't said this yet, but there are there's a decent proportion of patients who what we call quote unquote clear hepatitis C. So meaning that you're infected with it. Um, and before you're even treated, you know, if you look six months down the road, some of these patients may actually have cleared their hepatitis C and they don't have a positive RNA value. So, so that RNA test is really important to make sure that you know, identify people who are infected still. And then since those test results can take days or weeks, another really another visit is then needed to coordinate the care and initiate DAA, DAA therapy. So one of the things that they're talking about with this is that you know, can we use point of care testing? And I'll talk about that in a second. And then the third piece of, of this is not just so it's obviously um, poor access to healthcare testing, but also hep C treatment coverage is also challenged in some places. Um, one third of people who are diagnosed with hepatitis C who have private insurance, Medicare or Medicaid actually get treated. Um, and this is likely even lower for those without insurance. So, so why this occur, occurs is really likely multifactorial, but it includes a lot of issues such as stigmatizing requirements for patient sobriety. So some, some places will require people to not be using, uh, not using injection drug uses, use, maybe not even using alcohol, for example, and cumbersome requirements for documentation of liver fibrosis, um, antiquated restrictions that only 
those accessing care with specialists can obtain treatment, which is, you know, really not in line with the guidelines right now. In addition, these restrictions that are put in place by insurers due to high cost of the meds also hinders hepatitis C treatment. So there's a lot of reasons why I think some patients are not identified in the United States and why those patients are not being tre treated uh, here. Can you talk a little bit about the five-year national plan for HCV elimination? Yeah, so Mariana, so as part of this five-year national plan, there's really three, three priorities. And um, again, I think the most important piece is this point of care testing. So you can imagine that, you know, before... In the, in the very beginning, you know, even with HIV, we had antibody tests that were actually very, very effective in, in identifying people. But really what we need with, even with HIV sometimes to, to identify acute infection and with hep C, the kind of the same thing. And we need, we need uh, point of care testings that identify people that actually, where we know that the virus is active. And, and some of this actually may be mirrored, mirrored with, even with the COVID-19 pandemic, where, you know, some of the point of care tests were testing pieces of the virus that you would know that the patient definitely had active, active virus that was circulating. So these point of care tests for hep C need to be, need to be identified instead of just having antibody tests. And so this would allow for really same day treatment. So if you had an antibody test that was positive and then the same day, you could also do a test that identifies the virus. You could potentially start treatment on the same day, almost like we do with HIV, where you can do rapid start. <clears throat> so these tests will be particularly helpful in places like inner city community health centers, um, substance use disorder, treatment clinics, even correctional facilities, EDs, mobile vans, a bunch of different places where we could use these point of care diagnostic tests would be helpful. <clears throat> and that's um, really um, a collaboration that has to occur between the FDA and the NIH to speed up the approval process for these tests and to make sure that, that, they're, that they're accurate. I think number two is really that they're really trying to focus on establishing expanded access to curative hep C meds. And this is especially for Medicaid beneficiaries the uninsured and the high impact communities such as American India, um, Alaska Native individuals to make sure that they have access to meds. And then finally, um, a comprehensive public health effort really to kind of engage people, inform them, identify people, and then getting people screened and treating really as part of routine care, I, I think is the, P, is, the, is the key piece and trying to expand locations for testing uh, and even including places like pharmacies um, to expand the treatment infrastructure I think would be really, really key and then providing education on hep C testing and treatment for clinicians uh, and, and the, the increasing that network of treatment sites will really make a big difference. And I think other models such as telehealth, you know, treatment, uh, treating hepatitis C by primary care doctors, which is very, very easy, especially for the non-serotic patients. And I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but even advanced pharmacy practice models with if you have collaborative practice agreements with providers that sometimes are, um, have occurred in some areas of, of the country, I think can, are really models that I think can really make a difference in, in treating more patients for what we'll have to see. So John, just to review, what are the current guidelines for HCV from ASLD? Yeah, so so ASLD is the, the um, you know, the liver disease uh, society and these, these have been done in combination with IDSA. Um, but really, these guidelines uh, cover what we call, I think, um, eligible people who are eligible for simplified treatment. So simplified treatment is basically one of two choices, and it's really for, for those who have not been previously treated. And then there's other reasons. There's a, if you don't have cirrhosis, for example, it, it, you would use one of these two, uh, two pangenotypic regimens. It's either going to be glucapavir per um, taken with food for eight weeks or sofosavir, vilpatosavir 
for duration of 12 weeks. So one's an eight-week regimen, three pills a day, and then sophopatosphere is one pill a day for 12 weeks. So these are really regimens that we know are, are safe for the most part, you know, uh, require very minimal monitoring, and most importantly, cover all the genotypes. So you don't even have to do genotype testing technically at baseline. The real question you need to know at baseline is whether or not they have cirrhosis or not. Um, but, you know, most of the time for patients who are acutely infected, uh, most of them probably are going to be living without cirrhosis. Um, so a couple of things, too, just to make sure that they have an SVR or a cure. Usually after they've stopped therapy, we, we recommend a 12-week viral load um, to make sure that they're undetectable. And that's and if it is, that's a cure. So 12 weeks after they've stopped therapy. And then we also look at transaminase normalization as well. So sometimes their AST and ALT, some of their liver function tests will be elevated and those should normalize after, after treatment. And then after all, after, after the cure, after um, a sustained virologic response or this 12-week viral load after stopping treatment is negative or, or undetectable, really there's no, if they have no liver-related follow-up, it's really recommended for those patients who don't have cirrhosis. So it's really easy. So once you've achieved SVR, you're fine. If they have, you know, obviously on other ongoing risks for hepatitis C infections, for example, if they continue to, um, to, be, in, uh, to be someone who's injecting drugs or uh, uh, men having sex with men, if they're, especially if they're engaged in unprotected sex, all those should be counseled about risk reduction and really should be tested for hepatitis C annually to make sure that they haven't, um, haven't um, uh, been reinfected with hepatitis C. But I think the most important thing too is do our best to make sure that, uh, especially during treatment, to make sure patients avoid alcohol use if they can. Um, but I think for persons uh, living with, with HIV, I think the regimens are pretty much similar uh, with a focus on being cautious for those on HIV protease inhibitors or other boosting medications, for example, cobicistab uh, with, with Alvitegra, for example, and even some of our older NNRTIs that cause CYP450 uh, induction, which might drop the levels of the hep C meds. Examples of those are like a Fabrin, Zetravirine, Nevirapine. But also of note, I think, is the, is, is the fact that uh, uh, one thing I want everybody to know here, for, for, for those of you doing HIV care, for, for people who inject drugs, if you look at the number of new infections from uh, from from that group, those numbers, um, the, the the historic decline in those numbers in 2010 was around 3,300. And then we got to around 2,200 patients in 2014. Now we're back up in 2019, around 2,480. So between 2015 to 2019, there has been a, a slow kind of steady rise in the number of people who are identified as, uh, um, uh, as, as uh, acquiring HIV infection when um, they are identified as, as someone who, who inject drugs. So just a really important piece of that is that, you know, probably some of these patients may potentially also be contracting hepatitis C as well. So again, keeping in mind um, our risk factors for our patients and, and what are those risks and how do, we, how do we mitigate those risks and help patients to kind of manage it and do our best to make, to make sure that we, um, uh, we, we, we treat, treat them appropriately. That's probably the most important piece for, for persons with HIV. But at the end of the day, Mariana, this is where we have great treatments for hepatitis C. Uh, I think this this three point plan, which really is looking at uh, point of care testing and expanding access to curative treatments, and then also creating this whole public health effort uh, to help identify patients and get them treated with Hep C. I think is really going to be an important part of ending the hepatitis C um, hepatitis C problem in the United States. And certainly with these drugs, we can certainly do that. Um, but we're going to need help, and we're going to need funding, and hopefully this funding will. Well, we'll be there for us uh, uh, to, to do some of this, some of this work to, to end hepatitis C.
John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about some of the highlights of this new HCV or hepatitis C plan. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.